And we're back here on Unusual Sources, 93.3 CFMU-FM, broadcasting to Hamilton at 93.3 on the FM dial and the rest of the world via our streaming service at cfmu.ca. And I know some fans of Ted Schmidt are listening in today via our online service. Uh, I think we have Ted on the line now. So, uh, Ted, thanks very much for being on the program with us today. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, for those who are just tuning in, which is everyone at the beginning of the show, Ted Schmidt is the editor of New Catholic Times and an author of multiple books, including his new book, I Was a Catholic Zionist, A Biblical Challenge to Tribalism and Idolatry. Uh, Ted, I'm really excited about this book because I've heard so much about you. Um, I help out with the Taylor Report in Toronto, and um, I've heard your interviews, and I know you uh, well, I know how much work you've done on this subject. The funny thing is, I've been promoting your book on this program and at a few events that happened prior to this. Uh, there's been some events in Hamilton about Palestine. There's film nights and the Liberation Seder and a whole bunch of other things. But when I'm talking about your life, I can never seem to get the details right <laughs> because I've never met you and I was doing it off the top of my head. I said that you grew up as a Catholic, but with Jewish people. And uh, I couldn't remember the details quite offhand. How did that all happen? How, you, you did grow up with Jewish youth, so how did that come to be? Well, my father had come back from war work in uh, St. Catharines. He couldn't get a job here in Toronto because we had a German name, and yet we're largely uh, Anglo-Saxon. Uh, so he came back in 1945, when I was just uh, a few years old. And we found myself in the midst of a very Jewish neighborhood. This was not known to me. All my friends were just people. And uh, I lived right next to the most famous Jewish school in Canada, Harvard Collegiate, that gave the world uh, Supreme Court justices, uh, very famous lawyers, people like uh, Stephen Lewis, David Lewis, stuff like that. So I grew up um, right out the back door and um, went into the Harvard playground in the summers and played ball. We, as I always jokingly tell Jewish audiences, I was playing the last years of the great Jewish athletes before they discovered grad school. <laughs> and uh, they were just my friends. Uh, but I didn't realize how deep the anti-Semitism in Toronto was. And when we went to play ball uh, north of Bloor Street, which was the dividing line where Jews probably couldn't get uh, residence, um, the racism and the anti-Semitism was very deep. And uh, so I tell in uh, in my book uh, experience of being called all sorts of vulgar names because we were a very good ball team, uh, coached by a, a young uh, Jewish medical uh, man who became a doctor, a Russian Jew, and... Uh, so we were chased down there after we beat this team, and I guess they felt if they couldn't beat Jews, they couldn't beat anybody. So that that just sent chills up my 10-, 12-year-old heart. And I couldn't understand what had happened. Why had we been uh, treated like this, called effing Jews and dirty kikes? And uh, uh, well, these are just my friends. But the 10-, 12-year-old kid after city championships, uh, I go to university. Uh, in Toronto, and uh, I'm a little older, a little wiser, and I begin to put this together um, and how deep the anti-Semitism was. And I had been playing balls with the children of the living embers of the Holocaust, uh, unknown to me at the time. 
I said to my mother at six, uh, Mom, who is this Hitler? Oh, his name's Hitler's son. And I had no idea what it was all about. But as you grow, you, you begin to understand this stuff. So uh, I become a teacher. I was always uh, on fire with being a teacher. My mother had been a teacher. And I thought it was a wonderful way to spend your life. And uh, I vowed, if I ever got into teaching, that I would uh, try to rectify the anti-Semitism that I had experienced personally. And that Toronto in those years, in the 50s and 60s, was a fairly anti-Semitic uh, uh, place. Um, it was run by the Orange Lodge. Toronto, as I said in, those, in that book, was largely Belfast. Uh, Catholics had to keep their heads down, immigrants had to keep their heads down, and Jews, of course. And, of course, blacks couldn't hide because they had a different color. And I grew up right near the black community and right near uh, the Jewish community, so I became um, a, a lifelong uh, anti-racist. Uh, I just could not abide the way uh, my friends had been treated. And I always said that uh, I was very privileged. I was a highly educated uh, young guy. I had white skin, I was male, and I said, if I get into teaching and I did get into Catholic education, uh, I would do everything I could uh, to rectify and, and change uh, the narrative. And at that time, I began to teach the Holocaust. It wasn't, nobody touched it. Uh, but I had grown up. Uh, for instance, my shortstop, uh, Brian Ann Levitz, who played next to me, I was a second baseman. Uh, he told me that he was the cousin of Mordecai Anilevich. Now, no, knowing the history of the Holocaust, as I did, Mordecai Anilevich was the leader of um, the, Pal the uh, Polish resistance, the Jewish-Polish resistance. And he died under Mili 18, the very famous novel by Leon Uris. And I went, what? I found out later that this guy was the first cousin? And my friend Manny Gold, who played third base, he lost seven aunts and uncles in the in the Holocaust. I got to do something about this, so I began to teach it, and I threw curriculum out. I didn't give a damn, and so I began to teach the Holocaust. Nobody else was doing it, and I do it for a month. And then the Holocaust Remembrance Committee, the Jewish community, heard about me, and they said, "Well, you're the only one that's doing this." Uh, could we send uh, survivors into your class? I said, sure. Well, to make a long story short, I became a dear friend uh, of Howard Chandler, who had been a survivor of Auschwitz, and he'd come into my class for 20 years. So that's basically my background. Um, I understand that I was doing this even before they were teaching the Holocaust in Israel. And later on, I was rewarded. They planted uh, the B'nai B'rith, planted uh, trees in, in uh, the Martyrs Forest in Israel. Uh, they appreciated the work that I had done. I didn't feel I needed to be rewarded. I just thought that we had to overcome what the great uh, French-Jewish historian Jules Isaac called the teaching of contempt. Well, I had no contempt for Jews. I loved Jews. And as a Catholic, I knew that I had come out of Judaism. This was part of my story. So that's basically my background, as I often describe myself as um, a downtown Jew-loving Catholic. Basically my background. In the book, you mentioned here as well, that you had this early encounter with racism. Uh, yeah. You were 10 years old, right, and you you had beaten that, that other team. And yeah, yeah they shouted anti-Semitic slurs at you while chasing you down the street. Yeah. That gives you a rather unique perspective. 
because yep. you got to experience anti-Jewish racism in Toronto yep. as someone who was not Jewish. So, That's right. you know, in the ordinary course of your life as a Catholic boy, you probably would never have experienced that, but because of who you were with. So you realize that there were people being treated in a horrendous way that, again, your own other friends might not have known or cared about. So uh, you can see how that impacted you and how that changed the course of your life. And, you know, I'm not going to tell your whole life story here because you have a wonderful book about that, I understand already. But you did say in I Was a Catholic Zionist that you came to do Palestine solidarity work. You became involved with Palestine much later in your life. I find that interesting. In the book, it's very much at the, the sort of the second half of the book or uh, much later in the book. So you did not instantly become involved in the cause of Palestine despite your social justice background, and it, it took a lot of reading and years and experiences. So, you know, when did you become involved later in this solidarity work with Palestine? What was your, your wake-up call, or how, how did you realize yeah. the story? It was a wake-up call in the sense that I had grown up uh, many Jewish friends, and uh, uh, I went back and I reread uh, my journal that I kept during the Six-Day War of 1967, and I was appalled. My racist statement about uh, the Jews kicked the ass of this uh, G.D. Nasser, and that'll teach him. So I was a Catholic Zionist. I mean, uh, who are these people? Remember, in those days, we had uh, there was no Muslim community in Toronto. I knew nothing about the Middle East, and I was a teacher. Uh, so, but I knew Jews, and these are my friends. But then, when they started to hijack airplanes, and I said, "Well, there's something that I'm not getting here." But as a bibliophile, a guy who's always been a reader, I began to read, and I said, "Well, I, I got to go." And so my first, as I call it, the first of my three heartbreak tours uh, to Israel was in 91, 27 years ago, 28 years ago now. And what I saw broke my heart. I couldn't believe that the children of the Holocaust, uh, the Jewish people, had created a state that had been so inordinately cruel to the indigenous people, the Palestinians. And I was stunned by this. Um, and there's still very few Muslims in Toronto. And uh, so I began to read. And uh, the more I read, the more I realized that a massive injustice had been done to the indigenous people of Palestine. And so then I went twice more. And it just ratified. And so I always have a, a pretty good sense of humor. So I kept quoting the famous Jewish philosopher, Groucho Marx, who said, uh, you know, who do you believe, me or your eyes? Well, I had to believe my eyes when I saw the way the, the Palestinian people and the deep racism of contemporary Israel. That really bothered me. So I began to develop what I called a double solidarity. First of all, my love for Jews and Judaism will always be there. I mean, that's part of it. I, I grew up, my faith came out of Judaism, um, I, I loved that whole experience. I knew Yiddishkeit. I knew a lot of Yiddish. Uh, so I, I had a solidarity to the state of Israel. It was here. Whether it should have been created is another story. <clears throat> However, uh, but I had another solidarity, and that came out of my Catholic faith. 
my Catholic faith that begins with seeing the world from the underside. Um, a classic example is in your Globe and Mail today, uh, Jean Vanier seeing the world through the eyes of the uh, of those broken people who uh, somehow are shoved to the side in our culture uh, in the large movement. And so I began, and, and I knew this from my reading of German history, when in 1945 <clears throat> the great Protestant theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was murdered in April of 45 at the Tegel prison. And he wrote uh, letters from from the prison, very famous letters where he said, we've come to see history now from the underside, from the side of those excluded and marginalized. So my second solidarity besides Jews in the Jewish state now was the humiliated people of Palestine, those who were dispossessed and now living in camps, um, those people, the 750,000 that were kicked out of Israel, lost their homes and uh, never had the opportunity, despite inter international law, to come back and live in the land that was stolen from them. So I felt I owed a solidarity to those people. But I never, I never saw the twin solidarity as enemies of each other. I could hold them in tension. So I've spoke when my first book came out about my life growing up in downtown Toronto. I spoke in many synagogues, and I was so well received. But I was used to Jews. I took my children. We live out here in the east end of Toronto. They knew no Jews. They said they're beautiful people. Well, what would you expect? If I had grown up in a Chinese neighborhood, I would have ended up loving Chinese people. So. That was my, my double solidarity, and it started, as I said, when the hijacking of the planes started. And I said, well, why are these people doing this? So, you know, e you begin to read, and then you've got to go and see for yourself. And I've been to Israel more times than more, most Jews, and I've seen it, and I can't understand, you know, I do understand why tribalism exists and why people continue uh, to support something that, you know, out of their Jewish faith, should not be supported. And so that's where my double solidarity is now. Yes. Uh, for those just tuning in, we're speaking with Ted Schmidt, editor of New Catholic Times, because he has a book launch coming up here in Hamilton, and it's going to be on Monday, May 13, uh, not too long from now. So Monday, May 13 at 7 o'clock p.m. And I have to emphasize, it's going to be at St. Joseph's Parish Hall. A lot of events in Hamilton take place at the New Vision United Church, but this event is taking place at the St. Joseph's Parish Hall at 260 Herkimer Street, um, and that's on a bus route, and it has uh, ample parking, and it's wheelchair accessible. So that's going to be at 7 o'clock, and it is a book launch, and uh, we'll get into that a little bit more, of course, and I'll mention that again. Now, Ted, you talk about your double solidarity, and you talk about becoming aware of the condition of Palestine through all sorts of incidents and, and things that didn't match what you had been led to understand. Um, after 1987, you were looking at this even more, and you visited Israel in 1990. One of the things you did become aware of was the forms of Palestinian resistance. Uh, there's various resistance organizations there. Um, there's also nonviolent resistance. You interviewed the 48-year-old, at least at the time, the then 48-year-old Palestinian Gandhi, Mubarak Awad. Yes, I did. Well, that was an interesting experience, I guess, because that is another part of history and of Palestine that gets erased. Because it's my understanding from your book that 
Israel did not want to portray an image of Palestinians other than people who were irrationally angry and violent. Yeah, that's exactly right. Awad uh, had been educated in the States. He was a Palestinian, and he was totally nonviolent. And you can't have a guy in Israel that is nonviolent. They have to portray Palestinians as ravenous, as butchers. They're out to kill Israelis. They're savages, etc. It's just ridiculous. It's so stupid. Everybody knows Palestinians are the most uh, hospitable people in the Middle East. Absolutely wonderful, gracious, gracious people. And uh, Awad destroyed that image. He was meeting with Israelis, fellow Israelis who saw what was going wrong in Israel, and uh, they said, and this is what Israel does all of the time. As soon as the nonviolent movements get going, they get rid of the person, they kick them right out. This is not known here. They fire them out of the country, like they've done to Barghouti. Uh, and and several other people. They just can't have these people. It's it's just a terrible democracy uh, that they do this to people. And the the Palestinian nonviolence has been massive uh, throughout, uh, resisting the way they've been treated. But that doesn't get printed here. Uh, Nobody really knows. And, uh, you know, we don't read this in our newspapers because they're terrified of a boycott. We don't get this on the CBC because, you know, the Jewish presence is very, very strong. Uh, And they have, like, 50 people across this country. And I've told a couple of people in Parliament, they're very terrified because these people will come after you. Uh, It's sad. I mean, they don't bother me because, you know, they know the work that I've done in the Jewish community. They can't portray me <laughs> as an anti-Semite. I mean, that's just ludicrous. So, uh, as one of them said, well, he used to be a friend of ours. No, I'm still a friend. And I'm glad to see that the great writer in Haaretz, the great Israeli newspaper, Gideon Levy, uses the same analogy that I do. You know, if you had a brother that was an alcoholic, what would you do? Would you keep feeding him booze? Or would you try to intervene? Well, I've tried to intervene with several rabbis. They don't want to hear me, the former friend. Uh, I've broken with them because I, I, I'm speaking right out of the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm using uh, Yeshayahu that we call in Christianity Isaiah. I'm using the Jewish Scriptures to say, this is not who you are. Zionism is not a religion. Judaism is a religion, a religion I love. It's about introspection. It's about compassion. And that's the religion that you should be promoting. And, and the, the beautiful thing, Brendan, of my book, I don't write it out of anger, and I dedicate the book to 50 great Jews. These are fellow Jews. I call them the, the Jewish Jews. Those people who have grown up in the synagogue and learned those wonderful... There's no such thing as Jewish values. There are universal values that come out of Judaism, and those are compassion and the dignity of the human person. And if you go to Israel and you see the way that Palestinians are being treated, and you're a Jew, you got to come out and speak on the side of the humiliated Palestinians. So that, that's that's where I am, and I've I've tried to have a dialogue with rabbis. And they're very terrified about uh, uh, raising this issue. Uh, They're good people. 
and they do good work in their communities. I know some of them. And it's very divisive because the young Jews have fled. They are not Zionist anymore, and they're breaking with Zionism. And why? They're living their Judaism. And so many of the older Jews, what we call in Yiddish the Altakakers, it's just a Yiddish expression, I mean the old buggers, they still romanticize the 1958 novel Exodus rather than what is really going on today. Israel has really, really changed. So uh, I wanted to be a friend. I still am a friend of the Jewish community. I just like to use my image of the alcoholic brother. I want to intervene. I want you to go the route that South Africa went and had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission and finally saw that apartheid was a heresy. Zionism is a heresy. It's wrong. The, the country was stolen from these people. It's going to be there forever, that Israel. But you're going to have to come to terms with your original sin. And your original sin in Israel is you, with 5% of the people, stole a country uh, from indigenous people. And they were happy to live with you. And, and spiritual Zionism could have won the day. There were many great Jews that said, if we could go, we could have a homeland there, and we could rebuild Judaism. But that never happened. The more, the more political brand of Zionism took hold, and we have this state that's very sad today, uh, run by Netanyahu. Yes. I mean, you use Netanyahu and people like him as an example of how degraded conditions and morality have become there, and it's a long process. You talk about Jewish youth rejecting Zionism today, and you you talk about original sin, and you make the point explicitly in your book that you have to confront blindness and close-mindedness. You're not just asking Israel and Zionists to see beyond fanaticism, but your own readers to see areas in their own minds that they might have closed off. Um, So, you know, you spend a lot of time, you've got chapters, the early chapters in the book talking about Jewish history and the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe and East Europe, and of course that helped lead to Zionism, those pressures. And yeah. now that Israel gets to write its own history, uh, they've put a lot of skeletons in the closet, and a lot of things have been forgotten. And you mentioned the Jewish youth today, and it's sort of mirroring something that's been suppressed, which is there was significant Jewish resistance to Zionism. You know, in the earliest days, uh, different kinds of resistance, religious or political. So from 1880, 1890, all the way to the 30s and 40s, you know, who is who within Judaism is resisting it and why? Well, the, the real rabbis, the serious rabbis, saw Zionism as an alternative religion. It was about a piece of land. Well, well religion isn't about land. And in 1942, this was really the crux of the problem. As Hitler began his rise, Hitler was, was really the person that created the state of Israel. Um, when people saw the way this, that the Holocaust was proceeding, um, that opened up the whole idea of a Jewish state. But the rabbis at that time, and I named them, they're my heroes, um, Elmer Berger, Philipson, Reichert, Lazaron. These were incredible rabbis that said, just a second, we're fighting an ugly virus here in Europe 
that's based on the German words Blut und Boden, which means blood and land. Isn't that right? This is what Hitler is about. You know that Jews are untermentioned. They don't have the right blood. Uh, we're the Jew. We're the Germans. We have the right blood, and we have the land. Now let's get this straight. We as Jews, we're a religion. We're not a race. We're a religion. We're Germans. We're we're, we're Moroccans. We're Yemenites. Um, we're not one people. The religion is all over the world. And we want to create a state, let's get this straight, that's based on blood? The Jews have more privileges than anybody else? And that we want to take this land from another people who have been living here for 1,300 years? That had been a Muslim country for 1,300 years. So the rabbis saw the terrible, terrible thing that was going to take place. You're going to take a religion, you're going to turn it into a piece of land. Well, you see what happens when a religion becomes a state. It becomes very ugly, and it does terrible things. And that's not what Judaism is about. So I, I trace this. This book is written, uh, Brendan, uh, in a very simple way. It's not meant for academics. I mean, I have a background in academia, but I wanted people to know that there was great Jewish resistance, and it still survives in America under the American Council for Judaism. They were anti-Zionists right off the hop because they saw what was going to happen. But they began to lose power when Hitler, it became obvious what was happening to Jews, and many Jews could not get into many countries. So you could understand. But then Arabs began to say, well, we didn't create this. We're not the ones who uh, murdered Jews, but now you're going to do something to us. You're going to steal our country. You could come and live here, and we'd be happy to have a state that was called Palestine for since Roman times. Uh, but now you want the whole state, and this has been this has been the whole problem. So, the problem really among many people is tri uh, tribalism. It's my tribe. I know a lot of friends who are Jewish, and uh, they don't know what to think about this, you know. Um, uh, they're not really Zionists. They, they're not going to go to Israel, which was what Zionism is about. And I used to make jokes in synagogues, and I would use Yiddish expressions, because I, I grew up with knowing a lot of Yiddish. And I would say, you know, you people know that this is the golden Medina. This is the golden land right here in Canada. You're not leaving, are you? No, we have good lives here. We're Canadians, but we have a Jewish faith. But real Zionism, if you're a real Zionist, you got to go and live in Zion, which is the biblical name for Israel. But they're not going. So um, that, that, is, that is a huge problem. It's that whole problem of tribalism. People begin to say, well, this is my tribe. But, but as a religious person, I only not acknowledge one tribe, and it's the human race. That's the only tribe that God sees, the human race. And Jews and Arabs could, could live together. If it were not to that for the Israeli state trying to paint Palestinian people as somehow subhuman, the way they were treated, they could they quite easily get along with each other. But if you take that image of the wall, 
the, this is what they want. They don't want any uh, Palestinian Arabs to live with Jews because they might see that they're really not a lot different. <laughs> they're, they're just like we are. When my first book came out about growing up in a Jewish community, I got invited to Jewish homes. I never talked about the Holocaust, uh, about Palestine, because my life was just talking about what Toronto was, pretty anti-Semitic place. And then I began to hear such terrible things about Palestinians, and I wasn't even writing about that at the time. And I'd leave, and I'd say to my wife, isn't that shocking? I heard the same thing about Jews when I was a kid. Now I'm hearing such racism about Muslim people. This is not right. Why are these people talking? Well, they were brainwashed. And as Gideon Levy, the great writer for Haaretz, says, Israel is the most brainwashed country in the world. They never get to meet Palestinians because you got a wall there. you got roads that only Jews can ride on. And they don't get to meet Palestinians. And so once I was in Bethlehem, and Advent was coming, close to Christmas, many uh, Israeli women wanted to come in and see the lights of Bethlehem, which is an Arab city, the birthplace of Jesus. And they said, we're going. Their husband said, you're going. You're going to get killed. You're going to get raped. And they said, what are you talking about? Well, when they came in, the Palestinian people just greeted them with the cheers. Welcome. Welcome. And these poor brainwashed Israelis were phoning their wives every five minutes. Are you okay? This is the paranoia that Israel has created about Palestinians. Why? Because they don't meet them. Well, I live in Toronto. I get on the subway. I'm meeting the, the browning of my city. I love it. These people are great. I live down the street from Russians. I live near Romanians. What the hell's the problem? They're just human beings. And, and so I think that's the huge problem that we're dealing with today, which I call tribalism. We've got to get past the tribalism. And that, that's why Toronto is such a great city. And I would imagine Hamilton, too, you know. We live together. Yeah, there's going to be racism. There's going to be anti-Semites. We know. But the, switch, the flip side of anti-Semitism is Islamophobia. Ooh, look at that woman with the hijab. What's going on there? Something crazy. And so, you know, we're getting into Trump land, you know, where you these people are somehow different. Well, they're not different. They're just the same as you are. For those who are just tuning in, of course, we're speaking with Ted Schmidt, and he is presenting his book, I Was a Catholic Zionist, on Monday, May 13, at 7 o'clock p.m. at St. Joseph's Parish Hall here in Hamilton. That's... Uh, 260 Herkimer Street. Uh, that's a free event, of course. Uh, you're welcome to give donations. You can purchase the book, ask questions. I mean, you're bringing up a lot of interesting subjects. What you're referring to here right now, Ted, is that um, look what has happened to Jewish people as a result of Israel. It's a big theme in your book that Israel, Zionism, colonization has degraded Jewish morality. Has yes. you know, and it's certainly you know, it's I'm sure it's possible for people, Jewish people in Toronto, to observe it in their own families. The casual racism, and yes, these tribalist attitudes that you're referring to. Yeah, um, you took the time to look at some of the major wars that are a key part of Israeli history, like the Six Day War and yep. the War in 1973. 
according to you, that seemed to solidify something in Israeli culture. Um, before, they might have been more uncertain as to if they were going to hold on to Palestine or the land. But now, after those wars, they thought, you know, yeah, we can, we can take part of Egypt, we can take part of Syria, we, we can... The idea of entitlement, that the land was theirs and they would have it forever. Um, you know, I think you were arguing that Golda Meir thought that the world would come to accept Israel's annexation, you know, that she probably yeah. died thinking that. And so you have this accelerating settler colonialism in Israel. I guess you've seen all sorts of manifestations of that in Israel and, and perhaps here as well. Yeah, and, um, you know, you read in the paper, like, I think what changed many young Jews was 2014, when 550 women and children were killed in Gaza. And you can't hide that anymore, because people have cell phones, people have computers, uh, people are on Facebook, and people have gone there and seen... and. Once Israel controlled the narrative, Palestinians were trying to steal our... Well, just a second. You know, when you have the fifth so strongest army backed by a nuclear weaponry against the people that don't have a tank, don't have a plane, and you just come in and you murder, that's what it is, 550 people, 18,000 homes... In, in, in Gaza in 2014 in Protective Edge. That did it for so many Jews. They said, count me out. If you can do this to fellow human beings, uh, we're, we're not part of this. And, and that's why, for instance, in the United States, the Jewish Voice for Peace said, we are no longer Zionists. We have realized that we are blind and Zionism has created this blindness in much of the Jewish community. And so uh, the war, you know, after the 67 war, uh, you could understand there the Jews felt well that they were, once again, a Holocaust was in the offing. The Arabs were huge. But then we realized afterwards that the, the Arabs had no chance. The Israeli army was much too powerful. Even Menachem Begin acknowledged this. Uh, it was it was just a way to hype it up, and and so Israel's here to stay. The Palestinians have accepted it. Even Hamas says we'll we accept Israel. All we want is the twenty nine percent that's left over. And so you know you, you just can't get it into the newspapers here. You know they talk about the, this this fight between Israel and, and Hamas is if Hamas were like the Soviet Union. <laughs> These are a small group of people that are standing up. I mean, uh, I'm not for anybody shooting a rocket at any innocent people, but, I mean, it is a little one-sided here when you have Merkava tanks, Apache helicopters, F-16s, backed by a nuclear arms race, and you're calling this a war? That's not a war. That's a slaughter. That's a massacre, and that's what young Jews are saying. And Zionism, thankfully, is dying on the vine. And people are doing anything now, as we see the way they treat this Ilan Omar and the, the Muslims that are now getting into the U.S. Congress. Uh, they're trying to destroy Jeremy Corbyn in, in England. They can't, they can't allow any voice. Well, I'm just a small fry. I'm just a friend of the Jewish community. I used to be a friend, they say, 
so, uh, you know, it, it, they're losing the battle. Around the world now, Israel has become a, par- a pariah state. They're, they're up there with, you know, South Korea and, and other states. People are beginning to see, because as I said before, Brendan, you can't hide it anymore. People go with cell phones. Yes, you know, we just had your rabbi in Hamilton, Rabbi uh, David Miller was there. Uh, go over there. He wanted to pave a road in Hebron, which is a, just a hellhole for Palestinian people, and they arrest him. And But now, you know, he's on Facebook. He sends it back home. You can't hide it. Yes, in fact, uh, we're probably going to play that in a few minutes, uh, now that you mention that, because uh, Taylor Report interviewed him uh, live uh, in Bethlehem or somewhere on yes. Monday. We're only scratching the surface here. Um, you really you do look at, you know, these increasing voices in the Jewish community yeah. that are speaking out in Israel and here, you know, it's kind of a mirror effect because you do mention in the past the many voices within Judaism, prominent voices that were against this. The fact that lots of people believe that Jews and Arabs could work together, could live together, sure. and you know, there were there were people in the Jewish community in the diaspora a hundred years ago, and they were saying we can do that, and they were overruled. They were overruled with this sort of this very narrow-minded colonial vision which yeah. undermined any sort of left-wing things that people might have been talking about at the time with reference to Israel as well. Um, and you looked at all of that, so it's incredible. Uh, you have your own life, you have um, a, a very, you know, you talked about the way the book was written. It was not written for academics. It no. was written for ordinary people, and certainly that comes across. You know, the prose is very energetic and clear. You'll have no difficulty reading it, no matter how many pages it is. It's just it flows very quickly and easily. The chapters are short. Um, yeah. There's pictures and everything. So, you know, that it's, it's really easy read. It's just that there's a, there's a lot of material because um, this is your life work. It's become your life work on this issue, I would say. Now, Brendan, can I say one thing right here? You know, I am just honored that I am going to be speaking in a Catholic church. We are the biggest religious community in Canada. We have not stepped up. I'm so delighted to speak in the same Catholic church where my grandson, Joe, made his first communion. I'm a lifelong Catholic. And in 2009, the Palestinian Christian community asked for our solidarity in a document called Kairos Palestine. And they asked for our solidarity. I'm trying to give that solidarity. I'm delighted that St. Joseph Parish has the courage to say, well, we know him. He's edited our Catholic paper. He's a serious man. He's a grandfather. He's been married for 50 years. He goes to Mass every Sunday. And all he's saying is what Kairos Palestine is saying. And I'm going to start off that talk on Monday with what Kairos Palestine said, and it's this. We declare that the military occupation of Palestinian land constitutes a sin against God and humanity. Any theology that legitimizes the occupation and justifies crimes perpetrated against the Palestinian people lies far from Christian teachings. I am in the heart of a righteous, legitimate theology when I am coming to Hamilton on Monday night, and I'm so looking forward to this. Yes, well, I think a lot of people are. I think you're going to have really good attendance and probably, hopefully, a lot of interesting questions from the audience. I encourage sure. people, you know, <laughs> there's so many topics they can ask you about and you'll be able to answer them. So it's a, it's a rare opportunity. So 
thanks for taking the time. I hope people have an idea now of what you're going to be talking about. Of course, it's just a fraction of it, but uh, it's, all, it's all very interesting. So thanks again for being on the program with us today. A pleasure, Brendan. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll see you on Monday. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.